All right, so week three of the how to help people change instruments in the hands of, of the Redeemer, instruments in the Redeemer's hands, that is, uh, material. So this is kind of a part two of considering the heart. So again, if you took last quarter's class, some of this will be review, but uh, I don't know that we addressed it precisely in this way. Some of you have taken the uh, Counseling Fundamentals class or some other class where we've addressed uh, the heart, uh, but... Uh, as I mentioned in my prayer, we, we need to review this over and over and over again because it's so easy for us as we think about our own lives or as we're having the opportunity to minister to others uh, to just focus on the surface level issues, on the behaviors, on the words that are spoken, uh, on the you know particular uh, conflict uh, moment that's going on. Uh, and we want to address that, we want to change that, and we don't go really any deeper uh, than that to the heart. And so that's what we want to just uh, be more and more uh, ingrained in in our thinking and our understanding so that we can address matters uh, to the level at which um, the, the, the problem really exists. Uh, and that way there can be change, there can be true repentance. So let's turn over to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Last week, we, we did an overview of what the Bible says about the heart, uh, how it is the control center of life, that out of our heart flows the, the springs of life, uh, Proverbs 4.23 says. And uh, our heart consists of our thoughts, our cognition, our thoughts, our beliefs. It, it consists of our affections, which is our desires, values, priorities, expectations. And it also consists of our uh, volition, our will, our decisions, our commitments. And out of our will, of course, comes our actions, because that's what we decide to do, or our words, because that's what we decide to say. So, cognition, affections, and will. In fact, let me do another drawing. I know that it looks like Russell Man, but that's a heart. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and these are his hands in his pocket. So we have a, a cognitive aspect of our heart, we have an effective part of our heart, and we have a volitional part of our heart. Alright, we'll, we'll build on that in a second. So if, if we want to ask the question, why do we do what we do? Uh, we, we can ask that in a very general sense, and we can come up with all kinds of answers. And our answers would reflect in some degree our thinking, our beliefs, our affections, values, priorities, desires, expectations, and our um, volition, our will, commitments, and so on. But here, James asks a similar question, and he gives us a very specific answer uh, from, from that way of, of thinking. So look at verse 1. Actually, I'm going to read verses 1 to 10 to get us started here. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, of, uh, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. 
Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your gloom, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In this passage, you really have uh, the explanation of why do we do what we do, at least in terms of conflict. Uh, and then he provides... Uh, not just the, the heart level uh, in terms of our own thinking, which is very obvious there, our passions, our desires. But then he brings in the spiritual component of how this relates to our relationship with God. And then he p- provides the solution. All right? If it's true that the desires of my heart, which are contrary to my relationship with God, if that's the problem, then, then what's the solution? That's, that's what he gives us there. So we'll just kind of walk through this in, in somewhat of a, a quick manner. But as we do that, just think about this for a second. How many times when we're in a conflict do we blame other people for our conflict or our circumstances? remember years ago when I was uh, in seminary, I was counseling this couple uh, two TV personalities. She was a uh, sportscaster uh, in, in base, professional baseball sportscaster, and he was a professional basketball sportscaster. So you can imagine they were pretty well to do. Lived in a you know, beautiful community and large home, and they went to a particular church, and the pastor, um, he had asked me to, to minister to them. So, so I did, and I remember meeting with them sitting at their counter, and she's telling me, I am not an angry person. Uh, you can ask anybody. I, I don't get angry. I, I don't yell. I don't argue with people. I don't have conflicts. He makes me angry. <laughs> you know, it's just so uh, clear that in her mind, it's not me. It's him. If it wasn't for him, I, I wouldn't sin. I wouldn't be an angry person. Right? We tend to do that, don't we? Uh, we, we tend to blame the other person or the circumstance. Well, if you wouldn't have said this, then I wouldn't have responded that way. Or if you wouldn't have done that, then I wouldn't have done this. Uh, we we uh, shift the blame of what we've done, how we feel, uh, how we're uh, responding verbally or by actions. We, we shift the blame onto the other person or just the circumstances. You know, a person comes home at the end of a long, difficult day, and they, you know, are very uh, short in their temper, and you know they blow up at their spouse or their kids or something, and they say, "Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I just, I, I had a terrible day. You know, I had, you know, this situation at work, and that's why my temper is so short." So that's just our tendency. We we tend to blame the things that are outside of ourselves. And James here is saying, "No, no, no. It's not what's outside of you. It's what's inside of you." And he specifically identifies passions in verse 4. And what other word does your translation have other than passions? Pleasures. And that's probably actually the better translation. It's, it's the word hedone, which comes, uh, which we get um, the word uh, hedonism, you know, the pursuit of pleasure. So it's more uh, pleasures. Uh, we're going to look at, at Galatians 5, 
uh, in a bit, and there Paul uses the word passions, and there it's uh, the word that uh, relates to pathos, emotions, passions. So here it's really pleasures, the desire for pleasure, that which is delightful and, and exciting and whatnot. And, and then desires, epithumia, just those strong, compelling desires that we have. I mean, the reality is, we all have, within our own heart, I should have made the heart bigger, but we all have all kinds of desires. Uh, you know, you, you desire for a nice day. You desire for uh, a good um, a good meal. You have a desire for no traffic to prevent you from getting to work on time. You have a desire for your grades to, to or for your exam to go well. You know, you have a desire for you know, a project at work to, to move forward. You have a desire for a meeting to be productive. We just have all of these desires. And, and it's not wrong to desire. God has given us good desires. In fact, Jesus said to the disciples one time, I have desired, epithumia, strong, compelling desire, I have desired to have this meal with you. What meal do you think he was talking about? The Lord's Supper. His last meal. And just think about that. He, he says to his disciples, and he, of course they don't know what's going on, but he knows this is his last meal. And rather than saying, I've been dreading this meal because it's going to be my last meal, he says, I have been compellingly longing for this meal with you. So, epithymia, strong, compelling desires, are good. Or I should say, can be good. And we're full of good desires. In fact, my... A general observation is that the the majority, the vast majority of desires that we have as as God's people are by and large good desires. Uh, we desire good things. We desire to have good relationships. We desire for our kids to obey. We desire for um, you know coworkers to work together well. You know, we, we we have all these good desires, and and so the issue is not that we have desires. And the issue is not even that we have desires that are different than the desires of another person. Notice what he says there. What causes quarrels and what causes fights? It's not, is it not this that your passions are what? They're at war. They're at war. So, you know, it's one thing to have a difference of opinion. Uh, two competing or two opposite desires. Hey, I want to. I want to go to Chick Fil A. No, no, no. Let's go to uh, Nando's or let's go to what's that? Raising Cane's. Anybody been to Raising Cane's? That was. I've been anticipating that store opening for a long time. It's over by Home Depot. It's really good chicken fingers. It, it's it's the uh, it's kind of like the uh, uh, Chick Fil A of chicken fingers. Um, chicken or Chick Fil A has their chicken sandwich. Uh, Raising Keynes has their... Anyway, whatever. <laughs> Check it out if you... Uh, it's really great if you're low on carbs. Um, if you're carb deficient, they, they can help you out. Anyway, uh, if one person says, I want, I want to go eat here, the other person says, I want to go eat there, that's two opposite or com uh, contradictory desires. Let's put it that way, right? Is that a problem? No, that's not a problem. We have those kinds of contradictory... Uh, Mutually exclusive desires all the time in life. Um, but as soon as those desires become elevated to the point where we're going to go to war over this. 
Uh, I'm going to fight for my desire. That's when our desires become a problem. That's when we fight, obviously, and quarrel. When our common desires, natural, nothing inherently sinful about our desires, when those rise to the level of, I'm going to fight for this. You know, there's a, um, a pastor in, the, in decades ago who uh, was mocking uh, young, passionate men who would say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die on this hill, you know, on some theological conviction that they had. And he would mock them by saying, yeah, but who's going to kill you? <laughs> Who, who's going to shoot you over that? Nobody. It's not that important. <laughs> um, and, and so sometimes we're like, I'm going to die on the hill of, of this particular desire, whatever it is. And the reality is, there's, you know, somebody's always going to be willing to, to fight with us on, on that desire. So the problem is that, that we have desires that rise to the level of um, a battle, where we want to go to war with someone else. And he says there in verse 2, you desire and do not have, you don't get what you want, so you what? You murder. Now remember, G, uh, James is the half-brother of Jesus. Not that that in and of itself makes a significant difference to the meaning of this, but I think he's reflecting what his half-brother said about murder and anger. That if you're angry with another person, if you uh, treat them in, an, in a sinfully angry way, you're effectively murdering them in your heart. Right? Uh, when you call someone uh, a name, you fool, uh, you are uh, diminishing, you're, you're treating them as if they don't have any inherent dignity, uh, you're diminishing the image of God in them, and you're effectively saying, it would be better for you if you were not alive. So sinful anger, where you attack another person, even if just verbally, is in Jesus' teaching the same as murder. I think that's what James is saying here. The, the Christians in, in the church to whom he's writing, I don't think they were actually murdering each other. I think they were just treating each other in such a way that they were murdering each other in their hearts. He effectively then says it again by saying, you covet, another word for desire, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And he ends there, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, or again, pleasures, the things that you desire for your delight. So what James is saying, again, is it's our desires that are not just contradictory to somebody else's desires, but have risen to the level where we're willing to fight over it. Now, does anybody want to fight me about that? You want to argue with me on that? <laughs> okay, now, let's think of it this way. So we have all of these desires. We have all of these desires. So what we're saying here is that one desire that we have ends up taking the position of sitting on the throne of our life. It, it combines with our volition... To say, not only do I desire this, but I am committed to it, and I'm willing to fight for it. Uh, in the material in the, in the book, Paul Tripp uh, helpfully walks through a step, 
stepping process that we may not consciously go through it in our mind, but here's what actually happens. We have a desire. Hey, I desire for uh, my spouse to make coffee for me in the morning before I get up. I think that would be a very kind, wonderful thing for them to do. But then that turns into a demand. My spouse must make coffee for me. And that demand becomes a perceived need. I need my spouse to do this because I don't have time to do it myself. And, and if I don't get my coffee, bad things will happen. <laughs> so I, I don't just demand it. I need it. And that need then becomes an expectation. I expect my spouse to do this. Uh, they, they must do this for me. This is the right thing for them to do. They should do this. And that expectation then leads to disappointment. Well, they, they didn't do it. <laughs> They should have done it, but they didn't do it. And that disappointment then leads to punishment. Because you didn't do this, I am going to fill in the blank. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to seek revenge. I'm going to yell at you. I'm going to you know, argue. I'm going to give you the cold shoulder. You know, whatever, whatever thing we might do. So we go from desire to demand to need to expectation, disappointment to punishment. That's what it tends to look like when we have a desire that rises to the level of uh, something that we're willing to fight over. And what we're demonstrating when we've gone through that process is that our desire, that we're so committed to our desire, that that is now a ruling desire in our heart. Because again, we have all kinds of desires, right? We, we wake up and we're like, yeah, I desire to honor the Lord today. I desire to be a loving spouse. I desire to be a loving parent. I desire to be a faithful worker. Yeah, we have all of these good desires mixed in with all the other uh, kinds of desires, which in and of themselves are not sinful. But then one particular desire rises above all of the others, such that my desire to honor the Lord, my desire to be a loving spouse, my desire to be a patient person, those get suppressed because... I'm really committed to this particular desire above the rest. Ron. Uh, and also the, the, the reverse side of the coin on your example of the making the coffee is the other party graciously making the coffee out of their own will, but at some point in time, oh, he didn't say thank you today. Oh, he didn't say thank you again. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to have to make it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, we... we Go back and forth on those kinds of things, absolutely. So if, if a desire becomes a ruling desire, and especially if it rules over the desire to please the Lord, then what does that mean? What, what has happened in our life? Yeah, we've created, we've created an idol in the heart. And that's what James says next. Look at verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. By using the word adulterous there, uh, James is reflecting uh, Old Testament um, uh, language that idolatry, worship of false gods, is spiritual adultery. 
as believers, we are the bride of Christ, are we not? And so we, we belong to Him. He's, he's purchased us by His blood. He's redeemed us. He's, he's uh, covenanted with us in love. And so we are His bride. We belong to Him. He, there, there should be an exclusive relationship between us and our Lord. So when we go outside of that relationship to seek our longings, our desires, our fulfillments apart from God, and we want things more than we want to please God, that's spiritual adultery. So that's, what he's, that's why he uses that particular language. And then, and then he switches the metaphor to be that of friendship and enmity. That when we treasure the things of this life, Silly things uh, like where what we excuse me what we want to eat or more significant things of I, I want my family to to be a God honoring family uh, you know whatever it might be when we treasure that more than we treasure honoring the Lord and having Him be the Lord of our life then we're making Him our enemy and treasuring that which He does not want us to treasure above Him remember He doesn't share His glory with anyone. So he does not abide by, uh, he does not stand for competing uh, loves. Uh, we are to love him above all. And so when we love other things alongside or, or uh, more than him, then that is making him our enemy. So then the solution, uh, the rest of the section is really the solution. What do you do when you've found yourself in this situation where you have elevated a desire to the point where you're displeasing God, you're, you're idolatrous in your heart, you're arguing and fighting with others, well, you um, remember that he gives more grace, verse 6, that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So you repent, you submit yourselves, therefore, to God. You resist the devil and his temptations. You draw near to God, he will draw near to you. You cleanse your hands. Uh, which is a reflection of, of washing yourself clean, changing your behavior, doing away with, with the old patterns. You purify your hearts, so you get rid of those idols of the heart, those desires that have uh, become uh, over, over your desires to please God. And you humble yourself, and He will exalt you. So that's, that's the repentance side of it. You put things in their proper perspective. Again, so many of our desires are not sinful in and of themselves. So it's not that we have to stop having desires. It's that we put them in their proper place. And we put, once again, the Lord uh, over us in our life. So let me illustrate this just a slightly different way. I use the, the throne in the heart uh, picture Whenever there is a conflict between two people, and, and again, I'm not saying disagreement, I'm saying conflict where you're at war with another person because your desires have been elevated to the point where you're willing to sin in order to get what you want or you're willing to sin because you don't get what you want. What's really going on is that there is a, a deeper war, if you will, between you and God. There's a vertical war before there is a horizontal war. The vertical war is where in your own heart you have committed yourself to not preferring, not bowing down, not submitting to God's desires for you because you're so committed to what you want. That you're willing to disobey Him, rebel against Him by not loving this other person. 
the way that he calls you to love them. Let's turn over then to Galatians chapter 5. And this is in some sense a repetition, but same principle, because the problem with James 4 is that it's, in, in its expression, it's very targeted toward conflict. Here in James 5, we effectively see a similar principle, but in a broader context. Let me read James, or Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 down to 26. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. All right. So here we have another passage where we're given a relational uh, uh, command or a relational dynamic. And then he goes deeper to the spiritual uh, dynamics that are involved. And the relational part starts there in verse 13. This is more of a command. He says, don't use your freedom as, uh, as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. Uh, we are called to, to serve one another in love. Right? Paul talks about this also in Philippians chapter 2. Now look out not only for your own in interest, but also for the interests of others. Uh, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but consider others as more important than yourself. So we, we are called by God to serve others. And why are we called to do that? Why is that so important to God? Yeah? They will know us by our love. Yeah, that's a good reason. They will know us by our love. The, the world can observe that. Other people can, can observe that. What else? Yeah, following in Jesus' example. I, I think that's it. Well, that is it in Philippians 2 where he says, you know, verse 5, have this mind in you which is also in Christ. But our calling as the people of God is at its apex to glorify God, right? That's what we're supposed to do in all of life. And we glorify God how? By being like Jesus, thank you. Yeah? If we want to know what does it look like to glorify God in any and every situation, the, the question is, how can I exemplify Jesus in this moment? 
if Jesus was me, what would he do? And the, the issue is less about doing, in a sense, because you know, we don't really know, you know if Jesus was having to change the oil, how would he go about that? <laughs> in the car, that is. Uh, if Jesus was having to make a meal, other than saying food, you know, how would he go about that? <laughs> uh, so in, in specific situations, we don't necessarily know what process he would follow, what steps he would take, and you know, uh, what gift would he choose. It was, th- those are details we don't know, but we do know what else. What, what do we know that we can exemplify and imitate? Attitude. Attitude? Good. What else? Selflessness. Selflessness. You say love. Okay. What... Okay, his mind. What what about his mind? Motivation. Okay, good. His motivations. Good, Erica. Okay, so there there's a mindset there, uh, motivation. Yeah. So attitude, mindset, um, character. You know, you think about the fruit of the spirit. Those are character uh, issues of how we uh, live out uh, our life, how we engage in the world. It's there's a character that we that we manifest that drives the particular actions and words that we that we do and say. So we are to serve one another, we're to love one another because Christ has done that and we're to imitate him. He's done that to us, we're to imitate him. And while we might not always know the particular way in which he would do something or the specific words he would use in a conversation, what we do know is his character. We do, we know his motivation. We know the attitude that he had. And so if we can think through, okay, what would it look like to be loving in this moment? What would it look like to show patience in this moment? What would it look like to care more for the person than for the outcome of the situation? That can start to help us navigate our options of how we speak or respond in a moment. So, he calls us to serve because we are called to imitate Christ. And of course, that's also the second greatest commandment, verse 14. So that's what we're called to do. But then there's a warning there, verse 15, and this kind of corresponds to James. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is, how, this is Paul's way of talking about what James says, that you murder one another. You fight and quarrel with one another. Hey, if you're not serving one another, the alternative is that you're going to end up biting, devouring, consuming, eating each other up. So that's, that's the danger. And then he walks into, uh, he goes into what, what's going on in the heart, what's going on in the soul that determines these two different alternatives. One where you're serving and loving, one where you're biting and devouring. And those two are very obviously stated there. Walking by the Spirit versus walking by the flesh. And notice how he says in verse 16, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify what? The desires of the flesh. So here Paul is using the same word, epithumia, strong compelling desires, to reflect what's driving us in life. He's not talking about conflict specifically. He's talking about all of life and how we engage with one another in life. And we have these desires, and specifically desires of the flesh. Desires that in and of ourselves we would want 
which are not necessarily the desires of the Spirit. And then in verse 17, he talks about this conflict between us and God that's going on in our souls. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. So the war here, whereas James focused more on the war between people, Paul is explicitly saying here, there's a war between you and God. Your desires, your fleshly sinful desires, versus the desires that, that God would have you. Now, it's, it's not so much, uh, you know, you're here on earth and God's in heaven and you guys are having it out. He's talking about the indwelling spirit. So as believers of Christ, uh, we have the indwelling spirit. We have the spirit of God in us. And by his grace, we do have good God-honoring desires. And so it's more this internal struggle that we often have. I want to please God. I want to be a loving spouse, but it's so hard because they're making it hard for me to love them the way that I know I should. And, you know, I want to be a good parent. I want to be patient. And I want to be gentle, but my kids are making it very difficult for me to do that. You know, so we have this internal struggle that is at war within us. And he, he tells us what the solution is. How do you overcome the desires of the flesh? By walking by the Spirit. Now, that's, that's a whole other conversation that we're not going to have today of what, what does that mean in, in detail. But you get that principle that he's talking about of you have these competing desires. And notice how he says there at the end of verse 17 that because of these opposing desires inside of us, that they keep us from doing the things you want to do. And that to me reminds me of uh, Romans chapter 7 where Paul is saying, I don't do the things that I want to do and the things that I do I don't want to do, Right? Uh, that so often we, we want to please the Lord, we want to exude the character of Christ, and we know we should, but we just keep failing. But then there's other times when by the grace of God, He enables us to overcome the flesh, and we do manifest the character of Christ, and we don't carry out the desires of the flesh that are inside of us. So, so there's a, the, the, the back and forth on that as well. That, that's what leads so much to our... Our struggle is sometimes we do what we know is pleasing to the Lord and we're grateful for that because the Spirit's helped us do that, but so often we fail also. So he's again describing this, this internal struggle here. Um, but then there's the provision of how do, we, how do we resolve this? How do we work through this? Uh, I won't walk through the the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Look at verse 24 for the solution here. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so then he says in verse 25, if we live, and really since we live by the Spirit, since we are spiritually alive because of the Spirit who has made us alive in Christ, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. There is so much hope for us <laughs> because we have the Spirit of God inside of us. We're, we're not left destitute. We're not left to to have the same struggle the rest of our lives. Yes, we're going to battle sin the rest of our lives on earth. But because the Spirit of God is in us, because we have crucified the, the flesh with His passions and desires, God has given us all that we need to grow, to change, uh, to increasingly 
put off the desires of the flesh, to increasingly suppress those, those desires, to remove them from the throne of our lives, and rather keep increasingly putting the Lord Himself on the throne of our lives so that we can please Him. And just to explore this some more, go back to Romans chapter 6, where Paul talks more about what, what it means that we've crucified the passions and desires of the flesh. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that, that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a flesh like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So we have these desires, uh, desires of the flesh, uh, desires that may or may not be inherently sinful, most of the time are not. And often these desires become elevated in our own soul. They just become more important to us than the other desires that we have, like the desire to please God, the desire to live like Christ. And Paul is here saying, remember, remember, you are not bound to your sinful desires. You're not enslaved to them. They do not have power over you. They might feel like they do, but they don't. You have, because of the fact that you've been crucified with Christ, you have uh, died to your old self, such that whatever is remaining there, whatever is lingering in the air of your soul, of those fleshly desires, of those tendencies to, to prefer things above God, you now have the ability with the Spirit who dwells within you to suppress that and to submit yourself as slaves of righteousness. And then in the rest of the chapter, he goes, he goes on to talk about submit yourselves as, as slaves of righteousness and, and whatnot. I think he said that there at the end. Present your members, verse 13, as in, uh, not to sin, but to righteousness. Okay. Yeah? Is this the same thing as walk by the Spirit? Yes. Yeah. So when we are presenting ourselves to God, what we're saying is, God, I, I'm in your hands. Here I am. How can I serve you? What would it look like to serve you in this moment? We're submitting our will to Him. And then whatever He tells us, of course, through His Word, that's what we do. 
that's how we know what righteousness is, by what he says in his word. That's how we know that we walk by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I take walking by the Spirit simply as taking what the Spirit tells us in his word and living it out. Mm-hmm. That's Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus. I mean, He doesn't have to struggle to love us or kind to us and whatever. I mean, you know what I mean. So we, again, going back to the heart issue, our heart is like, oh, I want to hate them, but we need to crucify the flesh and mm-hmm. do that. But I mean, you know what I mean. But but Jesus' heart is so much different than us. So, he doesn't have to struggle that much to love us. As well, I would be careful with that because we don't necessarily know. Because he is also perfectly just. He is wrathful. Uh, he doesn't treat sin lightly. Yeah, he, he hates our sin, but I don't think he hates us. True, 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 true. But what I'm saying is he has a, a, the perfect... Um, let me just put it this way. He has the perfect balance. He knows how to marry his justice and his love and righteousness and his mercy and his grace, his anger. All of those are married perfectly in Christ. Uh, We don't necessarily know how does that... um, This gets into some deeper uh, waters of the affections uh, of God and the emotional life of God, but... Um, Jesus has to exhibit patience because if he doesn't he would pour out his wrath and so the patience of God uh, I don't think is just an easy uh, he just, he's just patient we're, I mean, I'm, we're kind of speaking in mystery here but I, I, I would be careful to say it's easy for God but it's hard for us I'm not saying it's hard for God. I'm just saying he has. He is also like us. He's balancing the reality of the sin, the consequences of sin, uh, the the expression of grace and mercy and compassion. Um, and so we we have to become more and more like him to to bring all of those things together in our minds, so that we we don't treat sin lightly. We don't ignore the reality, the impact uh, of sin, uh, but understanding the fullness of sin as as much as we can, uh, we still reflect the heart of God. So yes, it's harder for us because we're sinners. Absolutely. I, I don't want to deny that. Let me make that clear. But um, I think we shouldn't say, well, it's easy for God and it's hard for me and I just... No, I'm not saying it's okay. for him, but it's like his heart is so much different. Yeah, okay. So imitating... His heart. Yeah. I mean, I guess that should be our goal. Right. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. What makes his different is his perfection. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and that's what we will one day experience when we are glorified. We will be made like him, for we will see him as he is. Um, but by his grace and his power, he gives us the ability to grow more and more to be like him. Yeah. Pastor. Yeah. So if I'm under hearing you correctly, walking in the spirit, is it almost like 
fake it till you make it. <laughs> well, the reason is because yeah. I'm struggling to yeah, love yeah, someone. Yeah, yeah. Someone has hurt yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so what yeah, you're yeah. saying is I'm, if I'm walking the spirit, I've yeah. got to love this yeah, yeah. person. i got to say it to myself yeah, yeah. and really try. Yep, yep. So eventually will that happen? Yeah. That sort of. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, and I would say it's not fake it till you make it because faking it till you make it is kind of like I'm harboring anger in my heart, but outwardly I'm going to pretend like I'm loving them. I know that's not what you mean, no, but that's, right. that's what the phrase to me would convey. Because you're compiling a bunch of things like forgiveness and right, right. trying to release the anger. So you're really walking right. and trying to love and the things, the quirks, whatever that irks you, yeah. you're trying to let that go. So it's yeah. really hard. Yeah, so I would say fight it till you make it. Fight the flesh. <laughs> Don't fake it, fight it. Okay. <laughs> Fight the flesh, fight the the sinful anger, fight the bitterness. Okay. Uh, Pray your heart out, you know, plead for God's help. Yeah, not fake it, fight it. All right, there we go. So, because I've been struggling with this, and just a couple weeks ago I got further into Romans, and um, one of my favorite verses is Romans 12, 2, and it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Mm-hmm. And that's like so fun and cool and adventurous, <laughs> and like, yeah, the will of God. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole next paragraph is about service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm struggling to be transformed instead of conforming, I'm now reminding myself, go serve. Mm-hmm. And so my child is sinning against me, and he's disobeying, and he's talking to me like that. And it's like, I don't want to conform to the world in my anger, but I also don't want to conform to my the world in like, these are the parenting steps you get to get your teenager to obey. And so I go serve him. I go serve him, because that's, mm-hmm. that's the will of God. Yeah is for me in cheerfulness and with mercy. Yeah. Yeah. Serve that person Yeah. Yeah, and then he just keeps talking about that going even further down when he gets to verses 19 to 21. When he says, you know, don't take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So just he continues down that vein. Uh, and this is where we're reminded of the call of discipleship. What it means to follow Christ. It means that you pick up your cross and follow him, which means you die to yourself. And Luke in particular says, pick up your cross daily and follow him. So picking up your cross is not something you did the day you committed your life to Christ. It's something you and I must be doing every single day, dying to ourselves, because that's that's how we serve. That's how we... Philippians 2, uh, you know, look out for the interests of others, not doing nothing from selfishness, is we keep reminding ourselves, it's not about me, it's not about me, it's not about my desires, even if my desires in themselves aren't wrong. Uh, my responsibility, my joy, my privilege before the Lord is to imitate Christ by giving my life first and foremost to Him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then giving my life for the benefit and good of others. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's just that our moment-by-moment moment desires are so contrary to that. So we have to keep dying to ourselves. Yeah, Gloria. I was going to say that um, 
For me personally, what puts things into perspective is when I really don't want to love or forgive someone, or like, or it's like, you should go apologize to this person, like your sister, and it's like right next to you. It's like, I don't want to. <laughs> what puts things into perspective for me is uh, just the gospel and thinking about who I am and what Jesus who God is and what God has done for me. So, huh, like, I don't deserve forgiveness or love or anything of these sorts, but Christ did this for me and um, I have the Holy Spirit in me, so I do have the power to yield and do what you want to do. Even though it feels like I'm, it kind of feels like you're in a very minuscule way, like you're dying. That's what you're called to do. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't want to do this. But you're, and it feels painful. Mm-hmm. But on the other side of death is life. life. So, <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's what he says there in verse seven. For one who has died has been set free. He's been set free from sin, and that's what we're we're so afraid of. We're afraid if I die, what will happen? <laughs> uh, I have all these desires, and I, I'm not going to get my desires met, right? If I die. Well, what Jesus offers us is uh, an abundant life, a, a life that is free from the entrapments of sin. We, th- we think in our flesh, our, our natural tendency is to think that true life is bound up in getting things our way. In my desired outcomes, whether for a moment, for the future, for a relationship, whatever it is, uh, if I get things the way I want them, that will be life. That will be joy. That, w- that will... Define what good a good life is. And, of course, God knows better than that. And so He doesn't want for us what we want for ourselves because that's not what's best for us. So we have to die to ourselves and recognize that, okay, I might have desires and those desires might not necessarily be uh, sinful in and of themselves, but uh, what's, most, what's most important, what, where life is truly found is when God's desires are worked out in my life. And so, if I don't get what I want, that means that God has different desires for me that are better. Now, I don't mean easier. I don't mean more pleasant. Because sometimes His desire for us are trial, is trials. Because He wants to sanctify us. He wants to purify us. And so sometimes his desires manifest themselves in very difficult situations where uh, we are uh, given the opportunity to learn and grow in ways that we wouldn't if life was easy. So um, we are constantly having to die to ourselves, die to our own perception of what is good, what is right, what is best uh, in terms of our lives, and just keep coming back to um, what God wants is what's most important, even if it feels so contradictory to what I think is best. Brian? Okay, so I was, um, when you went to Romans 6, 1 and 2, it's one of my favorite couple of verses. It's one that I memorized when one of her sisters was 11 years old and something bad, and her mom said, go sit over there and memorize Romans 6, 1 and 2, and I happened to be sitting six feet away from her, while she's there quoted, I'm actually memorizing. <laughs> so it's stuck. So, so verse 2 says, how can we who die to sin? The question is, where did we die to sin? Even though we didn't physically be put on the cross with Jesus, 
our old self died on the cross with Jesus. So if you picture you being dead, how can a dead person sin? We're not going to sin. And then the question arose that, um, so God's character is different than ours. How can we live like Jesus? We can, so I, so you died on the cross. If you go over to Galatians 2, verse 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who gave himself for me. But if you go to the next verse, I do not set aside the grace of God. The grace of God is given to us. Not just the grace of God, Righteousness, our sin went on the cross, and God took away our sin, but His righteousness was given to us. Mm -hmm. The grace that's given to us allows us to live for Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not us doing it. Yeah. It's not we're not doing it in our own strength. Amen. Yep. Very good. All right. So to just bring this all uh, together in, in, into one uh, statement, if you will, uh, what causes the Conflicts and quarrels, what causes the sin, the difficulties, the troubles in our life? It's what's in our heart. It's our desires. It, yes, it's more than our desires. It's what we believe. It's, it's how we think about life. But desires is such a huge component of that. And it's when those desires are elevated above what ought to be our desires. And the solution is to humble ourselves, to die to our own desires, and say, Lord, you know, how would you have me to... Respond. What would it look like to imitate Christ in, in this moment? What What are your desires for me, and, and to live that out? So, uh, and when, the reason we can do that is because we have died with Christ, and His Spirit dwells within us, and we have the grace of God that empowers us. So that is something that is necessary for our own for our own lives, and necessary for us to have in mind as we minister to others. Uh, who are struggling in their life, where we can help them to see what uh, what, what are the desires, what's, uh, what's going on in their heart, what are they believing, expecting, what are they demanding that's contrary to what, what God desires, and help them work through things at, at that level of the heart, to, to come to a place of repentance and restoring what is most important, that, that they glorify and please God uh, with those things. All right, a lot more we could say about that. That's really just an overview, but I hope that's helpful. Um, and um, just encourage you to, to continue to dive deep into those things. If you really want to go uh, deep into the heart as to how do we think about the heart, what does the Bible say about how our heart engages in life, a really good book that I would recommend to you is called The, Dyna the Dynamic Heart in Daily Life. The Dynamic Heart in Daily Life by Jeremy Pierre. Just an excellent book that not only uh, walks through the truth, but he has uh, lists of questions which he, with each of the three components of cognition, affection, and volition of how do you examine the heart? How can you draw out the heart? Uh, and uh, so, super helpful. All right, uh, let me pray and 